it's difficult to look at our world today and not conclude that something is wrong. Something is deeply broken. Something is not right. But what is it? What is wrong with the world? You could look at any society, at any point in history, and ask the same question. Every society, it seems, there are divisions and war, hatred, crime, corruption, deceitfulness. What is wrong with our world? You could argue there is no more important question than that. Story is told that about a hundred years ago, this very question uh, was put forward by a newspaper uh, to several writers. And the famous Christian apologist G.K. Chesterton, he answered the question, what is wrong with the world? With two words, I am. I am. We're going to see today in Micah chapter 3 that Chesterton is right. We'll be in the book of Micah. If you're new to the, the scriptures, you can go uh, after Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and Micah. You can also look at the table of contents. I'll be reading from the ESV, and then we'll look at it together. So reading in Micah chapter 3, verse 1. It says, And I said, Hear, you heads of Jacob, and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their de deeds evil. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price, its prophets practice the divination for money. Yet, they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. We're going to see the answer to our question today, that the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And we're going to see this in three 
ways, three specific perversions of the human heart. First, the heart perverts God's ways. Second, it perverts God's truth. And third, it perverts God's promise. Perverts God's ways, God's truth, God's promise. We'll see as, as we go, this text majors on speaking to leaders, but there's principles for our own hearts. We'll kind of go back and forth as we go. But first, the heart perverts God's ways. It's the 8th century BC. Israel is divided into two kingdoms in the north, Israel, and the south, Judah. And they are slowly turning away from their God, turning to idols, to the gods of their neighbors. And as they do, their behavior is turning away from each other. They are beginning to mistreat each other, misuse authority. The nations, in a sense, are falling apart. And it's onto that scene that Micah the prophet comes. A prophet is someone sent by God to turn people back to him. And Micah has come to do just that. You'll notice if you read through the book of Micah, there is a lot of judgment in this book. Now the reason for that is not just judgment for judgment's sake, but again the hope that we would see ourselves correctly and we would turn back to God back to his mercy that's Micah's mission and so he starts in verse 1 saying hear hear listen leaders of the nation you must listen to this this is the problem is it not for you to know justice he starts with a rhetorical question these terms heads and rulers were probably the people who actually judged the cases the courts in that society They would rule on disagreements. It was literally their job to mediate justice, to decide what is right and what is wrong. And so he asks, is it not your job description, your very job description to know justice, but instead you hate good and you love evil. Your actions, your judgments, your life, your heart, all of it is against what is right. They're full of corruption. And he describes it in even starker terms. He says, Who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off of them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat. This is the starkest, maybe the starkest language in the entire Bible, even in the prophets. It's the language of cannibalism. Now, it's unlikely that there was literal cannibalism going on at that time, but Micah is using this to wake them up in the same way that Jesus said of the religious leaders in his day, you devour widows' houses. You use your power to take from the powerless. Your actions are so unjust and oppressive and wicked, it might as well be cannibalism. Injustice was rampant throughout their society. And we continue to see injustice in our world today. And the question remains, why? Where does this come from? How does this happen? Verse 4 tells us what we need to know. It says, they will cry to the Lord, he will not answer. He will hide his face. God's judging them by forsaking them turning away from them and he says the reason because 
They made their deeds evil. They have made their deeds evil. The evil doesn't come from circumstances. It comes from within. That we are responsible, moral persons. You know, it's difficult to deny that something is wrong with our world, but perhaps it's even more difficult to admit that something is wrong with me. The scripture teaches this truth about us throughout the Bible, that where evil comes from is from within. Jesus assumes it in Matthew 7. He's making a point about prayer, something completely different, and he makes this statement. He says, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your father give good things to those who love him? But you being, he just assumes, you don't have to be good to give good gifts to your children. You, in your nature, are evil. Psalm 51, David, in his prayer of confession, says that from the moment of conception, he was born in sin. Romans 7 Paul says that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. Evil is present within me. The answer of the Bible and the answer behind Chesterton's answer is that in every heart in this room and in our world, there is a fatal flaw. It's not that God has made us evil or even that he made us a mix of good and evil but that the human race turned away, and in turning away from God, evil has taken up residence within all of us. And we make our deeds evil. None of us, though, would say that we love evil. I'm sure that the the leaders in this time that Micah was talking to, they believed that they were doing right. Or at least they would justify their actions because of their position. Very few people would say and even think, I'm doing evil and I'm fighting good. I was pointed pointed to an article years ago in the Atlantic uh, by a guy named Jonathan Rausch. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name right, but it was about mob mentality, how mobs and riots form and, and why they act in the ways they do. And he was looking at research about this. You see, throughout our world, when mobs form, there's often the really intriguing, difficult to understand part of it is that so many law-abiding, mentally stable, emotionally healthy people who normally would do no crime, when a mob forms, when they join a group, they engage in evil things. And as they researched and, and uh, interviewed some of these people, they found that they, were, they might have been very humiliated by what they did, even surprised. For many years, it was assumed that, well, this was, must happen because of mass hysteria or just something snaps as a crowd is formed. But no, almost all these people said that they were in their right mind, they were not drunk. But what they realized was as this was happening all around them, as more and more people started engaging in these acts, there would be no consequences. They would not be caught if they also engaged. Usually what happens, rough estimates, but about 10% of people would be actually those who would start these kinds of things, whether it's stealing, looting, attacking people, even murdering people. 
And about another 10% would never engage. They would resist no matter what. They would not engage in these evil. But about 80% of the crowd would slowly start to act in these same ways because of what they saw and because they knew there would be no consequences. You see, there are a lot of things in our hearts, in our lives that don't come out because it wouldn't be profitable, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be in our best self-interest to do them. But if there was no consequence, you might be surprised by what you're capable of. Another big issue that this text brings up that's related is the issue of power. <clears throat> power reveals and brings about evil within us. Uh, these are heads, these are rulers in Israel because they had the power, because they were in charge, they, could, they didn't really have to face consequences and so they were able to get away with oppressing people. And that's a question we need to ask ourselves. Where do you have power in your life, privilege in your life? And how do you use your power? It's easy to look at someone who has more power than you and assume if I was in that position, I would not make the same mistakes or fail in the same ways that they do. You know, we've often heard the quote, power corrupts, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. And the reason that people believe that, the reason that's quoted so often is because it seems to happen over and over and over. When someone who seemed like they were a good law-abiding citizen, they seemed like they were caring about what's good for society, they gain power. They themselves become just as corrupt as those who came before. I had a friend uh, years ago, actually in Cambridge, that uh, she told me how she was really excited about this particular political candidate years ago. That she campaigned for him, she went to his rally, she really believed that if he came into power, he was going to bring the kind of change that society needed. But she was complaining to me that when he came into power, it felt like he was just like the rest who came before. And she would always use this phrase, she would say, coffee takes the shape of a cup coffee takes the shape of a cup. When someone enters a position of power, it's like that power changes them. It corrupts them. That is not what Scripture is teaching here. Scripture doesn't teach that power corrupts, but that power reveals. It's more like a full moon. And when a full moon comes, the werewolf inside of you arises and awakens the beast that you didn't even know was there if you're someone who has power and we all do to different degrees ask God to help you see your own heart how do you use power do you use it for good of others or do you use it for self do you take advantage of others if you were to look at your life, if you were to talk to yourself from five years ago, ten years ago, maybe you didn't have the same position you have now, the same luxuries or comforts. Do you compromise in ways that you never imagined you would have years ago? God calls us, first of all, to see that there is evil within us more than we realize. And it's often power that brings it out power, success, and money. So our, our hearts pervert God's ways. Second, 
our hearts pervert God's truth. Micah was not the only prophet in town. He talks about the other prophets, talks to them. He says, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Basically, these prophets are saying, show me the money and I'll give you the message you want to hear. It was money in exchange for a peaceful message. I'll tell you the good news that God wants you to know if you just give me the money, that your life will be okay. Jeremiah, years later, will describe similar prophets in this way. He says, they have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. And what he, Micah describes as their judgment is very fitting. He says, therefore, because of this favoritism, because of this abuse of God's word, it shall be night to you, verse, verse 6, without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets. The day shall be black over them. I'm going to turn the lights out. You're not going to hear from me anymore. There will be no vision. Even divination, the pagan practices that you look to will be futile. You will have nothing. You will have nothing. And it's this corruption and perversion of God's truth that keeps us from seeing the perversion of God's ways in our hearts. You see, God has given us his word as a mirror. The book of James says the word of God is a mirror that shows us who we really are. That every, when you read the Bible, when you hear it taught, every single page you should see yourself. You should see the ways that you fail. You should see what you're called to do. You should see your great need. You and I are blind. There's a reason why this idea of evil, of sin, that dwells within us is perhaps the most hated doctrine in the, in the Christian faith because we don't want to believe it. We don't want to see it. We have a hard time realizing it about ourselves. We need God to show us, to reveal to us. We need him by his word. That is the purpose of the scriptures. That was the calling of the prophets. And the temptation of all of us, but especially of those who lead, those who teach God's word, is to not talk about the difficult parts of Scripture, the difficult realities about ourselves, to make it sound a little bit better, a little bit nicer. I myself did not want to read about cannibalism this morning. It's a very difficult text. And that is why it is so important that the word of God be central in the life of a congregation we at Hope believe in what is often called expository preaching. We believe in going through books of the Bible and taking the main point of a text, making it the main point of a sermon. Often that means going chapter by chapter and verse by verse. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, I have nothing to say to you. Curtis, the elders, none of us have anything of value to say to you. God has something to say. And it is our job to show you what God has said. No more, no less. And so we do ask that you would pray for the teaching of God's word. Pray that it would be taught faithfully 
effectively. Pray that hearts would be open, even right now in this moment, but in the life of the church, even as we talk about his word in small groups, pray that God's word would be received and transform us. That's your first responsibility. But your second responsibility is to, is to take the word of God seriously. Paul said in the book of Acts of the Bereans that they were more noble than the other believers because they searched the scriptures daily to see whether the things he was saying were so. They looked at the Bible for themselves to see was what Paul's saying actually in the scriptures he was citing. That's one of the reasons, by the way, expository preaching is so helpful, is that hopefully we're showing you this is what the verse says, this is what it means, this is how you apply it to your life. And you should read for yourself. You should read ahead as we study Micah to know what's coming. You should be in the Word because that's a check on those who teach it. But the Word of God was being corrupted. It was not being taught the way it should be. It was being used to get profit. And it was leading the people astray. In contrast to that, in verse 8, Micah speaks about himself. He says, As for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Micah doesn't say, in contrast to these false prophets, I am a righteous man. He says, no, I am filled with the Spirit of God. He recognizes that he himself has this same fatal flaw, but he needs God to come upon him, to empower him, to help him. And he cannot change himself. And it's through the Spirit of God that he can now live a just life and speak about justice and the need to turn from sin, from sin. We today have an even greater blessing than Micah. The Spirit came upon him as a prophet, but because Jesus Christ has died on the cross and risen again, the Holy Spirit now comes and dwells in each of us as we turn to Christ. Those of us who believe in Christ have the Spirit within us. And this is the fundamental solution to the problem of the world. That yes, our hearts are evil, but you and I cannot work hard enough to change ourselves. We cannot think well enough. We cannot be good enough. We cannot feel guilty enough or be religious enough. No, you and I need power from outside of ourselves. We need a supernatural remedy. We need the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 36 promised that this day would come. God said, I will give you a new heart. I will take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and you will walk in my statutes. You see, we can make our deeds evil and we will, but we cannot make our deeds good. But he can. The spirit of God, the transforming power, there's nothing else like it in any other religion, in any other philosophy that God shows us how we turn from him, and he gives us the power to turn back. These prophets weren't speaking of that. They were simply focused on their own desires. They were living for bribes. We see then how the heart perverts God's ways, it perverts God's truth, and lastly, maybe worst of all, 
the heart perverts God's promise. Look at verses 9 to the end. He says, Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight. They detest justice just like we talked about in the earlier section. They build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. There may be even unjust executions going on. And now he talks about every kind of leader. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach her prices. Prophets practice divination for money. This corruption has spread to all of them. They're all doing it for greed. And yet, they lean on the Lord and say, it's not the Lord in the midst of us. It's not the Lord our God. Don't we, we claim the name of God? We still, yeah, we have these other gods, but we claim the name of Yahweh. No destruction shall come upon us. No destruction shall come upon us. It's the temptation of all of us to see the promises of God and assume if I just claim the name of God, if I just lean on Him, God will show me grace. It doesn't matter if I compromise. It doesn't matter if I mistreat someone in a small, subtle way. I will not face consequences. They misuse the promises of God and the grace of God. You know, when you see people in the name of Jesus committing acts of violence in our world, that's maybe the most egregious example of this. People rioting, carrying crosses, and saying that Jesus is on our side. You know, Jesus said that my servants do not fight because my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, they would fight, but because it is not, they will not. You will never need to fight or do anything sinful or mistreatment of others for the sake of God's kingdom. But the problem is we often assume that God is on our side, that he will support our own agendas. And we pervert his promises. When they say, yet they lean on the Lord, is not the Lord in the midst of us, they're not wrong in a sense. It's, it's, the, it's not that their, their trust is too, too, too big, it's really too small. They can lean on the Lord. He is in our midst, but that doesn't mean that disaster and destruction don't come. The New Testament says that neither famine nor nakedness nor tribulation nor sword, nothing will separate us from the love of God. It's not from disaster, but through disaster and through difficulties that we lean on the Lord, that the Lord is in the midst of us and makes his presence known. So we're tempted to, to, to believe that God is on our side despite the things we do. We're also tempted to believe that God wants our lives to be easy. We're tempted to believe that God promises us heaven on earth. God does promise us heaven in heaven, but he does not promise us that we can lean on him and nothing bad will ever happen. This life is not heaven. It is an arduous journey God promises us help along the way, joy and peace within the suffering, power from the Spirit, grace to help in time of need. But there are a lot of things that will happen in our lives. And it is just simply not true 
to lean on God and assume that life will always go the way we expect it to go. I don't know about you, but when life doesn't go the way that I expect it to go, I'm tempted to wonder, where is God? What is God doing? And I'm not leaning on Him in the right way. I'm leaning on my own ability to understand what is happening. And God doesn't say, lean on your own understanding. He says, lean on me. You will not understand everything that occurs in your life. Sometimes you'll be able to look back and see how God used it, but sometimes you might never understand until you're with him in heaven. But we lean on him because we know the author. We trust that he is right, that he is doing what needs to be done. And one day all the strands of all the stories will come together and we will see that our Father was truly working all things for good. But we must, we must not pervert God's promise along the way. We must trust that He is good, even when we cannot see it. And then finally, there's a surprise ending. Verse 12, at first, sounds like an awful ending. He says, Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. There will be not one stone left upon another. Judgment will be complete and final. This, your cities will be as if they never existed. There will be a forest left in their place, plowed to the, to the, like a field. It seems like there's nothing that's going to be left. But we find out from the book of Jeremiah that this actually turned out for great mercy. Jeremiah in his book, he describes how people were talking about this exact prophecy years later. And Jeremiah 26 quotes this verse. It says, Micah prophesied in the days of Hezekiah and said to the people, quote, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. But did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all of Judah put Micah to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had pronounced against them? This very judgment never happens. We know from the book of Jeremiah that the king that day, his Hezekiah, turned, was convicted of his sin, and feared the Lord and asked for the Lord's favor. And God was merciful. He relented. Because our God is a God of mercy. He sees the depths of our hearts and he still loves us and he wants us to come back to him. You see that God, after all this judgment and all this calling out of sin, calling them cannibals, at the end of it, he relents. Is God just giving in? Is he just saying, well, I didn't really mean it. I just was hoping you would try to do better. So I tried to use this hard language. No. God's not just giving in. The reason that God relents is because God takes all of this judgment upon himself. You see, Jesus Christ is going to come one day. And Micah will predict where he will come from, coming from Bethlehem. And he will live the life we should have lived. And he will go to, to be a sufferer in our place, to be crucified that his body as they whip him will be flayed and chewed up as it were, left unrecognizable, that as he hits, 
dies on the cross, God the Father, in some way we cannot understand, turns his face away. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The sun goes down. It is blackness and darkness over that day. And when Jesus cries out, all he hears is silence. The silent wrath of God. Ultimately, Jesus bears the judgment that all of us deserve because of the ways our hearts have turned astray. And so God calls us now to turn to him like Hezekiah did, to entreat the favor of the Lord. I heard someone say this week, the Christian life, in a sense, is about becoming a Christian anew every single day. Because every day we're to come to God confessing that I am a sinner, that I have failed, that I don't deserve anything from you, God, but I need the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, have mercy on me today. The more you are aware of the darkness that's inside of you, the more scripture as a mirror reveals who you really are, the more amazed you'll be by the light of his word, the light of his gospel. Turn to him today. Confess your sins. Ask his Holy Spirit to transform you. And he will. As a means of response, take a moment now. Ask God for help in these ways. And then we'll pray together. Father, we thank you that you are not like us, that you are a God abounding in mercy and love and compassion and grace. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us to see ourselves and to all the more see and be amazed by your mercy today. Make us a people of great mercy that do good to others because of the mercy shown to us. Pray. In your name.